Well, good morning. It is, uh, again, good to be with the people of God, uh, submitted to the Word of God this morning, praying that the Spirit of God will make us more like the Son of God. I am uh, thankful uh, to be here on a holiday weekend. It's clearly a holiday weekend because most people came to the nine. They had plans, I guess, on Sunday afternoon. But I am glad that you're here with us um, this morning. So, this morning we're going to continue in our study in uh, the, the Gospel of John. I am uh, Joey Thompson. By the way, my name is Joey. I am one of the elders here at Summit Crossing uh, Limestone. I'm uh, not the guy who uh, preaches every week. Um, I, I am thankful for the opportunity from time to time to be able to do this. Uh, we've been in the midst of a lead teaching elder transition uh, over the last several months. And you saw a uh, video message from the guy that God has chosen to lead us in our next uh, phase. And so uh, he, Bill, will be here late June, early July, as they're continuing to work out the logistics of, uh, of moving uh, his family up here. We're excited about getting them on board and, and uh, what God has in store for uh, our journey together as we co-labor uh, together in Christ. So... Uh, I'm looking forward to him arriving, uh, but this morning I'm looking forward to looking at John chapter 6. So we've been studying the book of John, the gospel of John we've been going through uh, together. Uh, it feels like we've been in John chapter 6 forever, uh, but John chapter 6 is a huge chapter. Um, we joke uh, from time to time about how to divide this chapter up because it's just so rich and uh, it seems like to be... Uh, Knit, knit together very well. It's hard to stop at any point. Uh, you just want to keep, keep going. It all ties together very well. But this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, verse 35 to verse 51. Um, I'm going to borrow a couple of verses from next week, uh, if I may, if you'll allow it. Um, so, but this morning, the, the text that we have today, chapter 6, 35 through 51, uh, is one of the clearest passages on one of the most misunderstood doctrines in Christianity. So this morning we're going to we're going to look at the at this doctrine together and and we're going to ask ourselves what does Jesus say about this particular doctrine? It's it's misunderstood, it's misapplied um, and and lots of uh, bad theology has come out of a bad understanding of this particular doctrine. And so Today, since we have a text before us that is, I believe, one of the clearest texts in Scripture on this misunderstood doctrine, uh, we're going to look at it together. And we're going to look at it under, um, under three headings. We're going to get to that in a minute. But before we get there, I want to help you kind of understand some of the, some of the titles this doctrine has uh, gone by over uh, many years. And so some, some call this doctrine uh, once saved, always saved. You've probably heard that. Some will call it the doctrine of eternal security. The perseverance of the saints was the title given to it primarily during the Protestant Reformation. And others call it assurance of salvation. So these are kind of four titles in different uh, in, in different groups, you might hear this doctrine go by those different titles or different times throughout the, the decades you've heard it go by different, different titles. And, and in reality, these different titles that people have given to this doctrine are, are, are really different ways to emphasize kind of different aspects of the idea 
behind um, our assurance that we have in salvation. And so this morning, what I hope to accomplish in your hearts, what I hope that the, the Scriptures, by the power of the Spirit, will, will accomplish in your hearts is, is that you will walk away today with assurance of assurance. Okay? As we, as we consider the idea of assurance of salvation, perseverance of the saints, eternal security in Christ, and once saved, always saved, I pray that you walk away with an assurance in the doctrine of assurance um, that gives you rest and peace in God. So b- before we dive into John 6, I want to I kind of give you a very brief kind of overview uh, of what, what I'm talking about. So why is the doctrine of assurance of salvation or perseverance of saints, whatever title you want to give it, why is this doctrine important? A few reasons, and I'll just hit uh, two. And that is without assurance, Christianity would lead to fear. Without an assurance of salvation, without us understanding that our salvation is accomplished in Christ, applied by the Spirit, without an assurance of that, then Christianity does nothing more but cause us to live in fear of God. Because once we become convinced of the gospel, come, become convinced of sin and convicted of sin, and we, we understand that Jesus died for us, but that we have to live in accordance with the gospel to maintain salvation, if we, if we have that concept, if we're not assured in our salvation, but feel like we have to live in accordance with the gospel to maintain or sustain that salvation, then we live in fear of God. With every move that we make, we, we feel like we've got to keep God happy. And that our relationship is constantly being broken. And that we deserve His wrath afresh and anew. And so without the doctrine of assurance, Christianity would lead to fear. So why else is this doctrine important? Because without the doctrine of importance, sorry, without the doctrine of importance, I've already done this once, so my brain is getting tired. No, without the doctrine of assurance, Christianity would establish law, right? Without the doctrine of assurance, the only thing Christianity does is reestablish for ourselves new law that now we have to live within. And we talked last week about all the different forms that that kind of new law can take, and we set up whatever laws that we want to set up to make ourselves feel good or to keep people in control, uh, under control. But without the doctrine of assurance, we will put on ourselves new law to help us feel like we're maintaining the proper behavior or proper attitudes or proper whatever to maintain our position of salvation before God. So without... Assurance Christianity leads to fear. Without assurance, Christianity leads to law. Those are two reasons why it's important. But I also want to talk about why this doctrine must be carefully understood. We we could go on and, and say once saved, always saved, we have assurance and just go on, right? But we have to be careful how we understand this doctrine because a misunderstood assurance would lead to a license to sin. 
See, if we don't properly understand this doctrine of assurance, people may begin to feel as though they can live however they want to live because, hey, I'm saved. Nothing's going to undo that, right? That's what you said. I have an assurance. I have a confidence. I know that my eternity is secure. I know that I was once saved, therefore I will always be saved. You've heard me tell this story before. But I, I, I have to, anytime I'm talking about this particular doctrine, I have to reiterate this story because it illustrates the misunderstanding of once saved, always saved. I, I was in a relationship with, with, a, with a gentleman uh, who, who I was really pursuing and trying to share the gospel with. He had nothing to do with Christ. He had nothing to do with his church. Uh, and, and, he, and he did not believe the gospel. He would tell you that straightforwardly. Um, and, and I began to pursue him in relationship, and we did several things together. We talked uh, regularly. We read books together. He chose the books, not me, so I wasn't throwing like theological books at him. And I just read whatever he was reading, so we would have things to talk about, and we talked. Uh, and this went on for months and months, and it eventually came to a point where he was beginning to just ask good questions about life. And I could apply the gospel in my answers to those good questions about life. And he began to open up to the possibilities of the gospel. And then his mother passed away. And I ministered to him during the, the time of his uh, mother's passing and, his, and the grief that follows. And, and she was up in Tennessee, so he would go up and do things up there after she had died and with the house and the belongings. And he called me one day and he said, Joey, I found it. You've probably heard this story if you've ever heard me preach on this subject. I said, you found what? He said, in a trunk at the end of my mother's bed, we were going through all of her belongings, and I found a certificate that says I was saved in a VBS when I was seven years old. So I'm good. That cut off all of our gospel conversations. He was no longer interested in the the direction that our conversations had been going. He no longer had questions about it because in his mind, he had his ticket, he was good. That is a misunderstanding of once saved, always saved. Because we get the idea from that title that maybe just as long as we have once said the right prayer, or if we have once walked an aisle, or we had once felt like the gospel might be true, then we're saved forever no matter how we live our lives but salvation is not having once said a magical string of words that we call a prayer salvation is something that God does in the heart and the idea is once God has done that things are different but not just because we have a card that says I might have done something that I didn't really understand when I was seven years old so a misunderstood assurance would lead to a license to sin because once we've got the card and we feel like we're good, we can go on living however we want. Paul even asked that question at times, right? He says, he says, what shall we do? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. That's not the intent of the gospel, nor is it the intent of the doctrine of assurance. A misunderstood doctrine of assurance would lead to an evangelism that focuses only on driving to decisions to get to heaven. 
See, if we have an idea that, well, if you're once saved, always saved, or, or nothing can undo this magical thing that you do, then we may just turn our evangelism program or whatever into a manipulative work to get men to make decisions. And once they've made that decision, then we go on to the next person because that one's good, I don't have to do anything with that one anymore, and people become projects. But a true understanding doesn't lead to that type of evangelism. A rightly understood doctrine of assurance doesn't lead to living in fear of God, but it enables a genuine love of God in intimate relationship with Him because we are assured of His love for us. A genuine right understanding of the doctrine of assurance doesn't lead to a dutiful obedience to some new set of laws, but rather to a joyful service of our King who has assured us that we are His. A right understanding of the doctrine of assurance doesn't lead us to a license to sin, but listen, leads us to a freedom to repent from sin. Did you hear that? A freedom to repent from sin. Not a duty to repent from sin. A freedom to repent from sin. How, how does a right doctrine of assurance do that for us? Because a right doctrine of assurance helps us see God as our Father, our loving Father, who cares for us and has grace and mercy towards us, rather than a judge that is we're trying to appease and a loving father I'm, I'm i'm scared to death of wasps by the way i've seen people preach on this stage with a wasp kind of flying around and that, if that ever happens to me dave better be prepared to just step in because i'm gone right <laughs> if there's a wasp i'm out right so it, ask brooks she'll tell you i will scream like a girl i am scared of wasps my son and i one time were in the woods and Suddenly, out of nowhere, he was getting stung by yellow jackets. I was too, but I was worried about him, right? He was getting stung by yellow jackets. We got out of the woods and we're beating yellow jackets off of him, and then I realized they're on me too, but I'm beating the yellow jackets off of him. And as a father, I do not look to him and say, Why did you step in the nest? Why did you disturb those bees? As if he had done something wrong. I look to him and compassionately and mercifully and, and lovingly care for the wounds and help him learn that the bee is the enemy. My son is not the enemy who has done something wrong and deserve what he got. My son is mine, and I compassionately care for him and help him learn that, well, yellow jackets like to build nests in the ground. You've got to be careful where you step because they're our enemy. And our loving, compassionate Father is the same way with sin. Sometimes we think that God looks at us as the ones who have done something wrong. Why did you do that? You need to do better. But He looks at us as a loving, compassionate Father who helps teach, who, 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 who takes care of the wounds of sin on us. 
and helps us learn that sin is the enemy. and helps us avoid that. And so, a wrong understanding of assurance might lead us to just live frivolously in sin. But a right understanding of assurance helps us understand that our Father loves us and our Father, as He loves us and cares for us, helps us see the enemy for who the enemy is and sets us free to repent from the enemy rather than making us feel like we've done something wrong. A right understanding of the doctrine of assurance doesn't lead to an evangelism that is purely decisional and drives us to just lead people to make the right decision and drive us to try to convince people to manipulate people, but rather a right understanding of assurance leads us to an evangelism approach that drives to discipleship because what we're offering is not merely a, a magic moment that secures eternity, but, but a glorious God that we have joy in Christ in not only eternity, but in this life as well. And so we understand Jesus told us to make disciples, not just to make believers. So we could go on and on. That's a brief, high-level overview of the importance of this doctrine and why we must be careful with it. And so when we come to this text, I, I ask this question, so what does Jesus have to say? Right? We're talking about that doctrine that's gone by these titles. Once saved, always saved. Eternal security. Perseverance of the saints. Assurance of salvation. And so I ask, what does Jesus have to say about the eternally secured and assured perseverance of those who are saved? Did you hear that? The eternally secured and assured perseverance of those who are saved. What does Jesus have to say about it? We're going to look at John chapter 6, and we're going to break that down into three parts. Because this is what Jesus has to say about assurance of our salvation. Here they are. You ready? The Father willed it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applies it. My prayer for you this morning is that you walk away assured of your assurance because your assurance and your salvation is not based on you or your work, but is rooted and founded in the triune Godhead. The Father willed it. The Son accomplished it. And the Spirit applies it. Let's look together at John chapter 6, beginning at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all those that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up 
on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from God comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So I hope you began to hear already as we read the text the idea that the Father willed it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it. But what we're going to do now is kind of walk through some things that are said in this text to help us see those three categories. I'm not going to be able to take it in order today because I've kind of categorized these three headings. And we're going to look at the different things throughout this text that fit in each of those categories that help us see it more clearly. And so first we'll look at the fact that the Father willed it. So if you will look back with me, it's on the screen if you don't have a copy of the text in front of you. Look back at, with me at verse 39. The Father willed this doctrine of assurance. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me. Now, how many times in your life have you wondered what is the will of God? Right? Well, this is what Jesus had to say about the will of the Father. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. The Father has willed that the Son lose none of those whom the Father has given to the Son. You see, before the world began, the Father and the Son entered into covenant with one another. We call it the covenant of redemption. It's beautiful. The Father promises the Son that He will give Him a people for His own possession, Peter calls it. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, the Father promises the Son. And I will call them out and make them yours, and they will be your people. You will be their God and King. And son, to purchase their redemption, to cleanse them from sin, to redeem them from the fall, you will become one of them. And you will fulfill the law, and you will fulfill all of the prophets, and you will offer yourself as a holy sacrifice and receive the punishment that they are due for their sin. And when, when you offer yourself perfect and holy, for their sin, I will accept your sacrifice in their place so that they can be given to you for all eternity as your possession. 
I promise you, son, they will be yours. And you will die for them. And in your resurrection, you will give them life eternal. This is a covenant between the Father and the Son. Two of the triune Godhead agreeing before the world began. And Jesus says here, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose none of them. Please, have confidence this morning in the assurance of your salvation, not based on anything that you know or based on anything that you do or based on anything that you feel, but based on the will of the Almighty God. I don't know of any will that can trump that, by the way. It is His will that He lose none of them. But let's continue. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, He reiterates, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Jesus says, not only is the will of my Father that I lose none of those whom He has given me in this covenant, but, but I, that, that everyone who looks upon me and believes me should receive eternal life. And He's not talking about just those who were lived alongside Him in the you know, first century and actually visually saw him. That's not what he's talking about here. He's hearkening back, which has already happened in the Gospel of John once. We've talked about it, if you remember. He's hearkening back to that story of the serpent that Moses raised in the wilderness. See, the people of God had sinned against God and God had sent serpents and those serpents were biting them and they were dying. And Moses told, God told Moses to raise a serpent in the wilderness. And those who would look to the serpent who was raised on this stick in the wilderness would be saved. Which was a foreshadowing of the truth that the Son of God would be raised on a cross and die for the sins of all those who believed in Him. And if you believed in Him, if you looked to Him, you too would be saved. This looked in in the ESV, can be translated see. That is, last week, if you were here, we talked about seeking Jesus, how you seek Jesus, why you seek Jesus, and, and if I were able to preach this whole text in one sermon, this would have been seeing Jesus. Right? You seek, why you seek, how you seek, now seeing Jesus would have been the title that I gave to this peace because he says those who look to me that is who see me and this is seeing with the understanding of the mind i get it kind of seeing and so he says those who look on the son and believe in him should have eternal life the will of the father is that if you believe in the son of god having been raised on the cross for your salvation you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. That's His will. Oh, how I long for you to have confidence in your salvation, not in anything that you do think or hope, but confidence in the Father and His purpose and His will. Verse 44, the Father willed it. He, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so the Father has given to His Son this people. The Father has promised 
that the Son will lose none of them. The, pro- the, the Father has promised in His will that all who come and believe and look to you for salvation will receive it, and I will draw them to you, He says. It's the Father's will. And so Ephesians chapter 1 really sums a lot of this up. So what I'm going to do is at the end of each of these headings, the Father willed it, the Son accomplished it, the Spirit applies it. At the end of each of those, I'm just going to read one verse from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 11, the other two will be 12 and then 13, maybe 14. Ephesians 1, verse 11, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, this Him is Jesus, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose. You hear that? According to His purpose, His will, who works all things after the counsel of His will. That's what Paul has to say about it. That all of this is being worked together in accordance with the counsel of His will. The Father has willed that you be assured in your salvation. So as the Father willed it, the Son accomplished it. So, Jesus says in verse 38 in this text that He came for a purpose. And in verse 38 He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So now Jesus is stating His purpose. We know now that the Father has determined, the Father has willed our assurance in salvation. And now Jesus is telling why He came. I came not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And so just like last week, we had a verb that was gapped. We have a verb that's gapped again. So let me read the verse again, restating the verb rather than gapping it. Verse 38 again. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. This is why Jesus came. To accomplish the will of the Father. The Father's will is for the salvation of all those who believe in Jesus whom He has covenanted with the Son from before the world began to give Him. And Jesus came to do that. To accomplish that. That's what He says. We can look at the same three verses very quickly. Verse 39, 40, and 44 to see what Jesus is going to do. So He came, He says in verse 39, that that. My will is that I should lose none of them, so I've come to accomplish that. And then at the end of it, he says, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus came to accomplish the will of the Father. That is, I came so that I would lose none of them, and so I will offer my holy body as a sacrifice for the belief for those who would believe in me for the people of God for my people that God is the father is giving me and I will raise it up on the last day so you may have confidence that it is the father's will that Jesus loses none and Jesus says I will accomplish that and I will raise you up on the last day this is what Jesus said he came to do He reiterates it in verse 40 when he speaks about the will again. For this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Remember, you'll have eternal life. And Jesus says, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is why Jesus came. To raise you up on the last day as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that we might not only be granted this this life eternal, but that He has promised that He, after our death too, that in His resurrection we will be joined with Him and He will raise us out of the graves, being made like Him, that we might see and be with Him for all eternity. So that's, that's my purpose. That's why I came. Verse 44, he says it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus reiterates it three times in short order. He says, this is my purpose. It's why I came. But what else does he say about his accomplishing the will of the Father? We'll go back to verse 37. Verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Did you hear it? I will never cast out. So not only do you have confidence in the assurance of your salvation, in the fact that the Father has willed it, but you may have confidence in the fact of the assurance of your salvation because Jesus, the Son, has accomplished it and He says, I will raise you up and He says, I will not cast you out. The Father is drawing the people of God to Himself and Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come and I will not cast you out. Oh, how I pray you have confidence in the assurance of your salvation. Not because you've done anything, not because you've said the right words, not because you have knowledge or certain feeling, but oh, how I long for you to have confidence in your salvation because of the Father's will and because of the Son's work. Place your hope in Christ because He is the one who says He will not cast you out. And then verse 47 through 51, he reiterates it again in a, in a new way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Did you hear that, by the way? Whoever believes has eternal life. It's not whoever believes will have this time. It's not whoever believes might get. It's not whoever believes will hope for. It's not whoever believes will continue to strive for. It's whoever believes has eternal life. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you've trusted Him and His work on the cross and His resurrection for your salvation, then guess what? You already have eternal life. It's what we talked about in John chapter 3 of being born again. The Holy Spirit of God regenerates the soul, regenerates the man. We become new creatures. And that new life that we have is the eternal life we will share in glory. We continue to struggle with sin and the old nature in the here and now, but He will raise us up. When finally our ultimate enemy, sin and death, has been done away with, we will be raised up with Him. And this new nature that we now have will no longer struggle with the old, and we will rest with Him for all eternity. But you have it now. I'm sorry. I say I'm sorry because that wasn't in my notes and I did that in the first service and I just did it again in the second. Maybe it should have been in my notes. Verse 48. I am the bread of life, he says. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what Jesus is saying here is, remember from last week, he had already talked a little bit about the manna. And he says it again here. He's talking about the manna from heaven. So they were in the wilderness. They were, they were um, wandering in the wilderness. And God gave manna from heaven. We talked about that last week. But that manna from heaven, if you remember, had to be given each day. Because that manna from heaven sustained life. It didn't give life. There's a huge difference when we look at Jesus for our salvation as the bread of life. We have to understand that Jesus doesn't simply as the bread of life sustain life in the sense that we have to go back and get grace upon grace. We receive grace upon grace. Don't hear me wrongly, but it's not like we lose our salvation and and the grace runs out like the nourishment from the manna and we have to go get more nourishment. It's not like the grace runs out and we have to go back and get more grace to be saved again. No, he says I am not like the manna in the sense that I am the giver of life, not just the sustainer of it. When I give life, it is eternal life. No longer need of any sustenance because I am sufficient for eternity. That's what he says here. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And he says says that you will no longer hunger and you will no longer thirst if you have this bread. Similar way he said to the woman at the well that, 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 that I am the living water. I am the living bread. You will no longer hunger. You will no longer thirst. Why? It's not that you will never need another meal in this world. And it's also not that you will never need food in heaven or never want food in heaven. I think I've seen a picture in the Revelation of a marriage festival, a marriage feast of the Lamb where we gather around the table and we eat the food of the marriage supper of the Lamb and we may even drink wine together because he's not doing that right now he says he's not going to share that cup of wine again until we share it together in heaven and so so we're we're going to eat food again but what does he mean by saying if you have this food if you have this bread you'll never hunger again you'll never thirst he's saying if you eat this if you receive me for your salvation you need nothing else i am it when i pour out my flesh For the salvation of the world, when I give life to you through the death of me and my resurrection, you need nothing else. You won't won't need anything else to sustain your salvation. You won't need anything else to gain salvation. You won't need anything else because I am sufficient. And so I will accomplish the Father's will of your assurance because I am sufficient. You won't need anything else. I give eternal life, not life just day by day. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, who, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're not talking about food here. We're talking about spiritual nourishment unto salvation, and Jesus is sufficient. So what did Paul say about it in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. So he works together all things 
according to the counsel of His will. And He says, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So He works all these things according to His will. He works our salvation according to His will. He works our uh, assurance of salvation according to His will. Why? So that we who hope in Christ, because Christ is the one who has accomplished it, because we who hope in Christ will be to the praise of Christ's glory, because Christ has perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. He has accomplished it. So the Father willed it. The Son accomplished it. Finally, the Spirit applies it. By the way, um, that piece about eating of the bread, and he says, I offer my flesh. Dave's going to have to deal with that next week. So come back. I'm interested to see how Dave does that. Thankfully, um, we cut my text off at verse 51 because they, they begin to grumble again and say, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to eat his body? Right? So that's for Dave, thankfully. Um, the Father willed it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applies it. Since I'm leaving stuff for Dave, I'm going to borrow some verses from Dave from next week in verse 63 of this chapter. Verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then 65, he says, And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So you have to understand that the Father has willed your assurance and salvation. The Son has perfectly accomplished the will of the Father, granting us salvation and assurance of it. And now it is the Spirit who is at work in us, giving us that life. It is the Spirit who moves in us to apply the gospel to our lives. As the gospel is proclaimed, as the scriptures are taught, the Spirit of God is at work convincing us of the truth of the gospel, convicting us of sin, and showing us that Jesus is the Son of God who has taken away that sin. And so He leads us by the power of the Spirit to look to Jesus for eternal life. By regenerating and renewing us and making us born again, as John says in chapter 3. It is the Spirit who gives life. That born again life is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's consistent throughout. And he says, listen, the flesh is no help at all. What a beautiful way to say that. The flesh is no help at all. Oh, how I hope that you are not depending on your own flesh, first of all, to accomplish salvation. Oh, how I hope you're not feeling like you have to measure up to receive salvation. That, that feeling of lacking of measuring up, that feeling of guilt under sin, is, is not God saying you're not good enough, that you need to be better. No, that feeling of not measuring up under sin is the Spirit of God saying you need someone outside of yourself to save you. You are unable because of the chains of sin to save yourself and so please turn to Jesus he's already accomplished it and so the spirit of god gives life it is not the flesh it is not the flesh who leads you to salvation and i want you to hear your assurance in your salvation for all eternity is not based on you maintaining it your flesh is no help at all 
We are utter sinful, sinful, utterly sinful. We still struggle with that old nature. We still fight sin. And God is at work perpetually helping us to repent of sin. You see, the right understanding of assurance leads us to a loving God who's compassionate and merciful towards us and helps us understand that sin is the enemy and the Spirit empowers us to repent of sin because He teaches us to hate the enemy just as much as the Father hates the enemy. He's not saying you have to maintain your salvation through works. Your flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit who grants life and who accomplishes it and applies it to our hearts. He says, that's why, by the way, I said no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. Because it takes a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so in this covenant of redemption the father promises the son to grant him and give him a holy nation a royal priesthood and the son promises to redeem them through his death and guess what the spirit promises to call them out and to bring them to him and so your assurance of your salvation is rested firmly on the father son and spirit on the eternal Godhead and His will, accomplishment, and His application of what's happening. It is not based on your flesh. And so you can rest assured of your assurance. So what does Paul say about it in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. See, the Father works all things according to His will. We hope in Christ and become the praise of His glory. And the Spirit is given to us as a guaranteed pledge of our eternal inheritance with a view towards our redemption. Your assurance is based on the triune Godhead. The will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the presence of the Spirit. So my prayer is that you may rest assured in His will in the Son's work and in His presence. And not, not live in fear, but live peacefully, loving God. That you would not live under the burden of law, but that you would live joyfully serving Him. And that you would certainly not live in freedom to sin, but that you would live in freedom to repent of sin as the Father works diligently to teach us who the enemy is and put it to death in us.